Are you ready for this? Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we are, uh, as always, we are desperately dependent upon your Holy Spirit for guidance in these, in these matters. Lord, when we come to your word, we're serious about it as a church. Lord, we, we take it very seriously. We, I was talking to some men this week, and Lord, those who give attention to your word, uh, it will be well with them. And uh, Lord, so we want to give attention to your word this morning. But we need the empowerment of your spirit to do that, uh, both for myself and for all of us as a community. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we left David. For those of you who don't know or maybe guess, we've been doing this little uh, juxtaposition between King Saul and King David. You say, that's kind of boring. That happened, what, you know, 3,000 years ago? I don't know if I'm really into that. And yet... I, I had a lot of feedback from this last week about the revenge, the running, and, and, they, and say, man, this really does apply to us. We didn't ever realize. We just thought David was a little story in Goliath, and then he became a king, and then he died. And we didn't know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, right? So, so it's important that we go into great detail. We believe here at Church at the Red Door, and I think it's a very orthodox way to think, is that all of these stories are actually a beautiful template for how we can live even in the 21st century. They give us insight into the nature of God and to the mistakes that men and women before, of, before us have made and also where they've excelled. And uh, it helps us understand our own journey. So we left David last week, and it was a powerful finale. Uh, he was at his absolute worst. I mean, you talk about low of the lows of all the lows. Didn't know where their wives, their children, his men were ready to stone him. And then the Bible simply says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, that right there is the primary, primary place that we see differentiation between King Saul, as we're going to see this morning, and David. But we want to pick up the story after that, and we can get some, we're going to get some amazing insights from the character of David this morning that I hope will profoundly change the way you view your life and how you live it in Christ. So let's press on to verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 7. It says, Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod or the ephod. It doesn't matter how it's pronounced, but it's pronounced both ways. Ephod we'll go with. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And then verse 8, David then inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Now these are the Amalekites. These are the, this is this kind of marauding band of nerdy wells that were running through the desert looking for plunder. They were basically pirates on land is essentially what they were. And they were looking to overtake and strip them of their women, their children, their goods, their booty, everything that they had they were looking to take and they had. Ziklag, where was really David and his mighty men, their city. But notice, David inquired of the Lord. That's going to be the real premise of our talk this morning. David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And then he, that's God, said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Now, before we go on to the rest of the story here, what... Why is that so significant? Well, I want you to try to put yourself in that situation. If there's ever a place where you're like, man, we got to get our kinfolk back, my wife, my kids, 
Is it even a question whether or not we should pursue? This is an obvious course of action. Have you ever been in a place like that where you say, there's just no question about what I should do. I've got to pursue it. I've got to go. There's just no question about it. And yet, if you were to really ask yourself, have you inquired of the Lord? You know, the tendency is for all of us to make a plan and then to pray to God and then say, God, where are you? Why aren't you blessing my plans here? What's going on here? I don't understand. I mean, I've been working so hard at this, and obviously this is your will, and yet, obviously, did I ever really, truly inquire of the Lord? Now, again, I'm not one of those people that think you have to inquire about the Lord, about every meal that you eat and where you go, but especially those significant why-in-the-road decisions that we all make in our lives, have you simply inquired of the Lord, or did you kind of put a pros and cons list together and said, well, obviously, it's time to pursue this path. What was so unique about David is that David inquired of the Lord. I find that jumps off the page at me. David inquired of the Lord. What is a life that, I mean, we talk about this all the time in here. What is it to have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's so hard. I had a, had a group this last week, and a, a dear friend of mine, he raised his hand. He said, look, I, you know, I, 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 I gave my life to Christ years ago. It's, 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 I know that I'm a Christian and, and I read the scripture and all this, but I just still don't understand this personal relationship with the Lord business. It sounds good, but with someone I can't see, it's just difficult. What does that look like? And I don't know that I've ever heard the Lord speak. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. It's difficult. I think it's difficult for the best. I know as you walk further down the road with Jesus and you are relational, that it becomes significantly more easy to hear his voice. I will tell you that. Why? Well, how does he speak? He speaks through his word. He speaks through community and then the various facets of the body of Christ. He speaks to you in prayer, just something that you sense on the inside. He speaks to you through counsel. He speaks to you in various ways. Sometimes he may show you something really graphic and amazing, and I've had a few of those cases in my life. The planning of this very church was one of those. But sometimes it's just so obvious that God is speaking, but sometimes it just feels like, well, I don't know. It's kind of six one, half a dozen the other. Or as my father used to say, six one, a dozen of the other. I said, no, dad, it's six one or half a dozen the other. Six and eight. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but that's just a Texas colloquialism that we, he kind of uses a little bit there. So what is that like? What is it like to hear the voice of the Lord? Well, first you have to inquire. And the second part, you have to wait. You know, they had an ephod, and I want to talk to you about this ephod. What is an ephod? What is it? Well, for all intents and purposes, what the high priest wore and it was part of their uh, garment, and he had the undergarments, but then he had what I can only describe as, it looks like a, a, cook, a cook's, uh, what do they wear, those little vests, the cooking apron. It kind of looks like a cooking apron. It was connected in the back, but on the front was attached this breastplate, and it had 12 stones on the breastplate, and each one of those stones signified one of the tribes of Israel. And then either attached, theologians don't know, either attached to the breastplate or in a little compartment inside the ephod were these things called the Urim and the Tumim. 
And these are very complicated. I don't know exactly what it was. It almost feels like little stones, and it could have even something. Theologians maybe think it said on one say yes, and the other one said no. One said true, and one said false. It's, it sounds like necromancy, divining. It sounds kind of occultic. And yet, prior to the Holy Spirit, in inquiring of the Lord, you would... This is what David did, by the way. He went to the ephod, and no, no question, they got the Urim and the Tumim, and they just said, should we pursue? And they kind of almost like rolling dice or something and said, oh, true, yeah, true, or go, or something happened. It wasn't the voice of the Lord like we hear today. And he said, man, if I just had me an ephod. I tell you what, if we had an ephod here, right here at Church of the Red Door, they'd be, li- they'd be lined up in lines behind, getting wanting to know yes or no, because that seems so much more easy doesn't it? If I just had, just give me yes or no, God. I mean, just let me know. Ephod seemed to work, and yet there was something, and we even see this in the New Testament. If you will, I want you to go to Acts chapter 1. Very interesting. This is right prior to Pentecost. Now, Judas Iscariot had obviously this, if we pick it up in Acts chapter 1, what had happened here just prior to the, what we're, where we're going to read is he had actually gone out and hung himself in what's called the field of blood, and then evidently his corpse drops, sorry to be so graphic, and, you know, his, he, he was just kind of, something happened. He fell from a long height, and you know the rest of the story. And so they had to figure out how are we, we they knew intuitively that we need 12. Somehow this was kind of a representation of the 12 tribes, you know, we need, a, we need somebody to replace them. And they actually went back to the psalmist and read this, verse 20, Acts chapter 1, verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. So they knew we were going to have to come up with somebody else to replace him. We can't have 11, we need 12. Well, therefore it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, Bar, or Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of men, show which one of these you choose to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles, or Matthias. I don't know how you want to pronounce it again. Some of these have, as I've told you before, many of these names have various pronunciations. So, look, drew lots, threw dice, pick, pick a straw, any straw, you know, short straw, long straw. I mean, this, this I could do, some of you say, right? But there's a shift. This is prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's very important that you see that our inquiring today takes a different turn than even right up to the time of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out. God always wanted to be a relational God. He always, the always, and you've, if you've been around and any of the teaching that I've done through the last number of years, many of you know, you've heard over and over and over, the Holy Spirit was promised hundreds and hundreds of years in advance prior to this event called Pentecost. 
I'm going to pour out my spirit on all men. Joel chapter 2. Psalm Isaiah 32. I'm going to pour out my spirit, the spirit upon all. I mean, just, the spirit's going to, it, there's a coming day. It's going to be a new covenant, a new deal. No longer are we going to use lots and uh, urim and tumim and throwing things and all. No, no, we're not, we're going to be done with that. God's going to speak to us individually and it's going to be relational. And you're going to go to him and you're going to inquire of him and then sometimes you're going to have to wait. I'll be honest with you just to give you a quick update. Uh, this whole piece of land, where we're going to be and all that and, you know, what do you want, Lord? And I, every day I, I, I say these words, Lord, today I am inquiring of the Lord and we're not moving, we're not going to do anything until you clearly have your hand in it. And for whatever reason, it's just kind of not been there yet. And yet, I don't want to get ahead of God. I don't want to just press forward till we, so we can have something. I want it to be as spectacular as it was when we got this place right here. Many of you don't know the story, but even being here, we signed the lease on this, or we wouldn't, this church wouldn't have launched. We signed the lease. We'd already given a drop-dead date of June 30th. We knew June 30th, if we go any past that, we're not going to be able to launch a year and a half ago. We wouldn't have been able to launch. And I wasn't even in the country. And on June 30th, guess what? Sign. We didn't even know about this place. And if you remember the picture on the website with the swooping white roof and all that, and Kristen took a picture of it, and we put it side by side, it looked almost exactly like what the vision that I had felt that God said, this is going to be something the Church of the Red Door is going to look like. And if you put them side by side, they almost look exactly the same. I didn't even know this place has existed. Has this been a perfect place to launch a church? Isn't it great? It's, it's so wonderful. It's intimate. It's got, you know, some elevation here. The Everything's good. I mean, it's not perfect because we need midweek place. There's all kinds of things that we need. But for a place to launch, it could not have been better. Well, so will the second step be. But are we inquiring of the Lord? Look, this is not a criticism at all to what, what I'm going to say because we've got some incredible people that are operating on this. But this has been a lesson for us all, especially business guys who are used to just say, just get it done. Just go for it and let's just get this thing done, you know. And it'll just, we'll just kind of plow through this thing. And I'm saying, yes, yes, and I, I agree that, you know, but I, here's what I'm waiting for, for those of you who want to know. I am waiting for some kind of something where the Lord just speaks, and I don't care if it's like, I'm going to give you the McCallum Theater. And I'm like, I know that's not going to happen. But if he says that, I'm going to sit outside the McCallum Indian style. And I'm going to sit there and be praying all day. I'm just going to wait till the Lord gives McCallum Theater. I'm telling you, somehow, some way, the Lord's going to do it. But I want us to look back and go, look what the Lord did, not look what we did. Look at the great negotiating skills that we have. Look at all the money we were able to raise. Look. Now, we want to look back wherever the next step is. And say, look what God did. But see, that requires inquiring minds want to know. We need to inquire of the Lord. And then we need to wait for his answer. You say, well, their answer is, you know, just true. Yes. Oh, great. Let's go. And our answers are, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what is your will? Where do you want us to go? What do you, what's the next step? Only you know. You know what Church of the Red Door is going to look like two years, three years, five years down the road. You know everything about, Lord, what is your will? And then it's silent. And I know many of you say, well, I, I pray and it's silent. Wait 
and keep on waiting. See, the big thing about this is persistence in the Spirit. I want you to go to Luke chapter 11, if you will. Luke chapter 11. And by the way, before, before we do, I just want to say quickly, right after Pentecost, as one example in Acts chapter 15 called the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, if you're taking notes, verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. This was a massive thing that they had to do. They had all these uh, non-Jews that were coming in and now believing in this Jewish rabbi named Jesus, believing their story of the resurrection, and they didn't know what in the world to do with these Gentiles. What do we do with them? What constraints do we put on them? This is called the Jerusalem Council. And they never pulled the ephod. Never. They never looked for, you know, drawing straws or, you know, let's have a gunny sack race and see who wins. None of that. What did they say? It says, and it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. It just seemed good to them. It was the Lord had spoken in the sense that there was a collective yeah, this is the right course of action to take. Was it accompanied with the choir of the Lord? Absolutely, they inquired of the Lord. Lord, what do, what do we do? And they were in prayer and this whole Jerusalem council. Lord, what do we do with these Gentiles? Lord, we're asking you. And then they had counsel and they had the word. And they referred back to the word. Because remember, there was no New Testament at that time. So they referred back to the Old Testament and said, Yeah, look, remember where it said that the Gentiles were going to be rejoiced with the Gentiles, with his people? Oh, oh, nations, rejoice with his people. Remember when God said that? Well, that clear. So they used the word, they used counsel, they used wisdom, they used the community. And then it was like, yeah, that's right. And that was the Lord speaking. No drawing straws. No. That was the Lord speaking. Now, Luke chapter 11, Jesus again. This is a shortened version of Matthew 6, which is the Lord's Prayer. And they ask, you know, how do we pray? And then Jesus responds like this. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, verse 1, after he had finished, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, let me say it this way. Lord, teach us to inquire. Lord, teach us to discover the Father's will. How should we talk to God? How should we do that? Just as John, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said, well, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, this is only a portion of what we get in Matthew 6. But then he says this, and he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three Costco lasagnas. For a friend of mine has come to me from a long journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, uh, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed, and I can't give, get up and give you anything. I'm too tired. It's been a long day. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his, because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, you need to understand two things I want you to notice from this passage. First of all, what does he say? He goes, he goes to his friend, he says, I have nothing. See, if you don't go to God with the attitude, if you're going to inquire, if you don't go to God with the attitude of, God, I have no clue here. I have no idea. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer to this conversation. I don't have anything. 
I am outside your door. I am knocking, Father. I need help here. I have nothing. I got to tell you, there's probably few situations in my life more more to the point is what I was referring to, our, a next step for church at the Red Door. It's like, I have no idea. I have no idea what you want. I have some opinions. I think there's a collective sense growing in the community of what this might look like. I, I kind of think, but I really have no idea. And Lord, I, this could be a mixed bag. And I am a mixed bag of emotions and thoughts and visions and dreams. And some of them are founded in glorifying God and I'm sure some of them are founded in you know just having a nice thing or this I don't know Lord I and I really I've come to the and I just get down on my hands and knees and say Father I have nothing I have nothing we're completely and utterly relying on you to get up and help us out here it's your church Jesus said you you said Jesus you'll build your church it's your church not mine certainly not mine it's your church so the attitude in inquiring is not, I've, I've got a bunch of great ideas, God, what do you think? Although at times that could be, you know, you come and you, you, this is just a relational aspect. But I think that better attitude is, Lord, I just really have nothing. What is your heart? And then would you begin to inscribe on my heart what your heart is? And then secondly, it's important to understand that just because Jesus told this parable, this does not mean all, that God is in bed and, a, and sleepy. And doesn't have time to, you know, pay attention to your request. That is not the point of the parable. At time, you remember, a parable typically is not for every little tiny. Some people read so much into these parables. There is generally, generally, theologians agree, there is generally a truth, an overriding truth that's being communicated in a parable. And if you take a parable and try to make every little piece apply to God and apply, it just doesn't work out that way. It's important to know. And I know these are interpretive battles, but I can promise you, because the Bible says God never sleeps, and so God's not sleeping here. I'm in bed. The kids are in bed. You know, sorry, Jeff, I don't have time to answer your request. It's not, it's not what it's saying about God. So let's go to the next part. So it says, I, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Now, here's a big promise. If you are inquiring of the Lord... Ask, seek, and you will find. Is there a better promise in there? I mean, you may have to wait, but you will find. Now, I've had times in my life where I've prayed for things, and it was almost instantaneous. I just knew in my spirit, Lord, what do you want? It was just like I knew the direction to go. And there are other times that I pray, and it's six months. It's a year. It's, and the waiting part of this is vitally important to your emotional well-being. Because if you don't understand that sometimes you have to wait, and it may be a significant season, that's where we are in this, there are seasons of just waiting because God's doing things downstream that you don't even know about or upstream that you don't know about in terms of the journey, and he's waiting until things all come into clarity. Now, very often is the case in big decisions that God gives you, um, he'll have you do something like pray and inquire and begin the inquiring process and prompt that in your own spirit, knowing that there's no way there's going to be an answer for another year. Why? Because he's accomplishing all these other things to make that moment exactly right. And you say, well, why now? Why the waiting? Because of great things are accomplished in the waiting process. Great things are accomplished in us in the waiting process. We learn not to stress out about everything. 
Okay, Lord, I've put it in your hands. I am inquiring. I am inquiring every day. And you're not giving me an answer. And I am going to be comfortable in trusting you and waiting upon you during this season. I'm just going to live in the tension. One of the greatest attributes of anything, as we see, is that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is long-suffering. It's suffering when you need an answer and you can't get it. But to be long-suffering is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. To be patient is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And in a culture that's so impatient, so impatient, I mean, everything is right there in our hand, in this little handheld device, they call them. It's just instantaneous. You know, we don't even need a travel agent anymore. Just Expedia, Priceline, got it, you know, going to my... I mean, there's no waiting. And then the Lord says, wait. Or we take action without it. And that's what we're going to see in a minute. Was Saul's greatest fall was taking action without waiting. Jesus goes on. He says, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, he receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, what is the it here? Ask for what? Give you context here, and this is important. Suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake. Instead, a fish will he. Or if he's asked for an egg, he won't won't give him a scorpion. Will he? If you then, being evil, it's always fascinating. Jesus is just trying to... You know, Guru Jesus is just trying to bring out the divine in you. He's the enlightened one. And if you can just get the divine in you, here's Jesus going, if you being evil, which is it? Enlighten Jesus that many that we talked about on Easter, enlighten Jesus. No, Jesus just knows we're all great people. We just need to get the goodness out. Jesus said, no, you're all evil. That's why I'm coming to die for you. I have to shed blood because you're all evil. If you then being evil know how to give Good gifts. Now, this is the good gift. Now, what's the good gift? Here's the question. To your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you everything you wanted? No, give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So what is the answer to our inquiry? God sends the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised before Pentecost, it's better that I go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. And then the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. You'll know it when you get increasing evidences of the manifestation of the spirit in your life. Now, this become, can become a theological quagmire. But my experience and the experience, I believe, of Scripture is that there were a multiplicity of fillings of the Holy Spirit. They were filled at Pentecost, but then it would say in the book of Acts, and then Peter being filled again with the Spirit. And then there would be another one, they were filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't believe that the Spirit departs from you once you're a follower of Jesus. I believe you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. But don't ever underestimate your prayer and inquiry. Father, I'm asking you for a good gift. And what is the good gift? I'm asking you for the discernment of the Spirit. I'm asking you for the spirit of truth. Would you just overwhelm me, overwhelm me with the power of your Holy Spirit? And then I'll know the right thing to do. Because you already told us he was going to guide us into all truth. And I have a question for you. Do I go this way or do I go this way? David, do I, do I try to overtake the Amalekites or should I wait 
That's fascinating. I mean, what would you do? How instinctive would your reaction be? Boy, is there a lot of pressure on let's go get them, boys. Let's hang them high. I mean, there's a lot of pressure. And what did David do? He stopped and made inquiry. I find that amazing. That is a golden nugget right there. Oh, Lord, thank you for this. If this be true, I can change my whole life. Lord, I make all kinds of decisions without inquiring of you. I do it all the time. Lord, and maybe even today, you say, Father, just begin to forgive me. Forgive. I have made so many decisions, and I have not inquired of you. Father, I have more the heart of Saul this morning than I have the heart of David. Father, would you forgive me? Jesus was pretty clear. John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice. <clears throat> he says, I know them and they follow me. I, and I give eternal life to them. And they won't ever perish. Did you hear the words of Jesus this morning? They're not going to perish. They have eternal life. Relax. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, this, I get this question all the time. Can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? I just come back. I come right back here to verse 28. And I go, whoosh. Father, I know that I'm kind of up and down. I'm an emotional guy, and I, I struggle sometimes, and I do. But I'm telling you, when you said, and not one, no power, no force, no entity is going to snatch them out of my hand, not my sheep, I have, to, I have to have the precursor to that prerequisite, which is, Lord, am I hearing your voice? Because his sheep hear his voice. See, that'd be a big question I would ask if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning. Do I hear his voice? Do I read the word enough to ever go, well, that, God just spoke to me. If you've never had an experience where you say, I was reading the word this morning, God really spoke to me this morning through Acts chapter 5. It was amazing. I just felt like I had an experience. With the Lord. If you've never had anything like that, you should ask yourself, am I playing religion or am I actually having a relationship with the creator? Is he your shepherd? Are you his sheep? It's a good question to ask. Paul told the Corinthians, check yourself to see if you're in the faith. Don't check yourself to see how many times you've gone to church or how many times you, how much money you've given or any of that other stuff. Jesus said this, and I know you've heard me quote this, but Matthew 7, he says, many are going to come to me on that day and give me the list of their amazing spiritual accomplishments. Lord, we've cast out demons in your name. We've healed the sick in your name. Lord, look at all the things. Look at our resume. And then I will turn and say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, which is it? Do you know the creator of the universe? Can you say, I have a relationship with Jesus? Do you think about the unseen realm? Or do you only do things on the exterior? See, David goes on in verse 21 through 31. There's a quick story. They, they did. They took after the Amalekites, and they overtook them just as God said they would. They got everything back, everything. They didn't lose not one thing. Plus the spoil. David comes back. Now, 200 of the men were exhausted by the time they got here, and 200 stayed behind, and then the other 400 went in, and they, got, they had this great victory, and they came back, and, and they said, now this is, uh, hey, we're not sharing with these guys. These guys hung out. These guys stayed behind. We're not sharing with those guys. And David says, as a great leader that he is becoming, he says, are you guys crazy? Who do you think won this battle? You think we won this battle or do you think God won this battle on, on our behalf? They're going to get back everything that they have, their women, their kids, and they're going to get their share of the booty even though they weren't even in the middle of the battle. 
And then not only did he do that, he went through all the places that they, the Bible says, that they were accustomed to going in these various cities, Hebron and other places, and he, and he began to share the spoils of war with them. Now, what, where does this give us an insight into David's character and his leadership style? He was no Kim Jong-un, keep it all for himself and let the rest of the country starve. He was someone who shared. He was someone that understood also that there were people behind the scenes that were just as much a part of the community as someone who was up front, and that's where we can apply it now. Are you kidding me? Somebody set up those signs out there. You know, our hospitality team, somebody greeted you when you came in. Somebody came early and got all this and signs, and I didn't do this. You think I got here early and... All these candles lit, they're not really lit, but they look like they are, and you know, and got all these, everything put out, and, and the screen's up, and the, the, the sound's gone, and the, the air conditioning's right, and, and boy, Jeff works hard. He must get here 3, 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock. I get here about 15, 20 minutes before we go. Why? Somebody's in the background, and they're just as vital to the organism as anybody else, and David understood that. And it was clear in terms of his reciprocity of spirit. I can promise you that the church at the red door is a function of a very large organism. Many of you are part of that. And for that, we are deeply grateful. Even though it may appear that you kind of hung out in the background, doesn't matter. You are an integral part of the ministry of church at the red door, and, the, and we are deeply grateful. So now we get to the tragedy of Saul's end of life story it doesn't get much worse than this first samuel chapter 31 is short and to the point i'm going to read portions of it verse 9 says and they cut off his head well what what had happened prior to this well he had retreated to mount gilboa and he had his sons there even jonathan with him and he had several other sons and uh, they were being overtaken by the by the enemy, by the Philistines, and uh, it got brutal, and then he was fatally wounded. He was shot through, but he wasn't dead yet, and uh, even in that moment, you've got to understand that he was so concerned about, hey, kill me, kill me. He was trying to get one of the servants to kill him, and he says, I'm not, no, no way am I going to kill you. He says, you're the anointed king. He says, please kill me. I don't want them to make sport of me. See, to the end, Saul was always concerned about what other people would thought. How, yeah, he wouldn't want to go through the embarrassment. I realize that would, not, that would be a tragic moment, but how, how does he know? How does Saul know that God might not come down and absolutely wipe him out? They may get within five feet of him, and it might have been like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus just says a word, and they just, and all fell to the ground. How did he, he, he'd heard stories like that. Wasn't it the God that, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his forefathers? Wasn't it the very God that allowed that little puny David to wipe out Goliath? I mean, what, where's the faith here? Even though he's fatally wounded, where is the faith here? Where, there, we get no evidence, not one piece of evidence that Saul was in prayer at this time. Not one. Here he is about to yield up his spirit in his own mind. No faith. No spirit, no belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, Yahweh. Where's Yahweh? None. No, it was only, well, this is what the circumstances look like. You need to go ahead and kill me. Can you believe this? I mean, he was called to be king. He had that little faith. 
And then I look at that and I go, is Saul in me? Are you in a position of leadership in any place in your life? And are, do you have a Saul's? Well, the circumstances are so bad, it's just going to go horrible. There's just no way this is going to ever work out. There's no way it could work out. Let me give you the long list of reasons. And you don't even think about inquiring of the Lord? Would he not even remotely think the Lord anointed me? He had the Holy Spirit came on him at one point. And he was small in his own eyes, Samuel had said. You were very small in your own eyes, but the Holy Spirit came on you and empowered you. And you became like a different man. You don't remember any of those stories, Saul? You don't think back about your journey and think about all that God's done in your life. And now you say, well, the circumstances are bleak. Would you go ahead and kill me? So he fell on his own sword. And then verse 9, they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of the Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, well, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Can you get the picture here? These headless bodies, as some of the poets have said, like jackals, you could hear the jackals in the background, <laughs> swinging in the wind. Headless bodies, he and his sons, in enemy, in enemy territory. Did it have to be that way? Where did Saul go so drastically wrong? Does it have to be that way in your life? You may feel that way right now. Well, you know what? I am already feel dead. I already feel like I'm a headless body that's just swinging in the wind. And my whole family's going down the tubes and my whole life is collapsing around me. See, the beauty of this is that if you even feel that way, there is a place of restoration for you in Christ starting today. Jesus will mount that wall, untie you, put your head back on, so to speak, only this time it'll be the very mind of Christ. That's called a new birth experience. And your life can be radically different. See, that's the promise of the good news, the gospel. It's never too late. It was too late for Saul, but it's never too late for you. Not if you can hear my words this morning. What was it about Saul? What was it? At the very core. I mean, you have to, as I said last week, I mean, you have to, if you line up and say, this is David's sin and this is Saul's sin, I mean, David maybe excelled in the sin department. If you were to just to talk about the gravity of his sin, I mean, you know, he was guilty of a lot, but David was guilty of a lot too. What was the difference? Well, Saul wasn't an inquiring mind. Never was. In his whole life, he never inquired of the Lord. Oh, at little places he'd say, he'd ask, but then he'd never act on it. <clears throat> so truly wasn't inquiring of the Lord. He was going to do what he was going to do. But he played the religious part of asking a couple of times. And yet the Lord would, said, the Bible says over and over that the spirit would depart from him. And the Lord sent an evil spirit. Because God knew his heart. Oh, he's making a public confession, a public, uh, yeah, crying out to the Lord. But in just in another day, he'd be doing his own thing. He never, and David, although as sinful as he was, boy, his heart was to inquire and then to act. <clears throat> not just inquire, not a show, to act. And that was the lifestyle he had. 
Saul just wasn't persistent in seeking God's heart, never was. He was never truly repentant. Saul was never, we never get an indication that he was truly repentant because repentance always has action with it. He was religious on the outside, but he was never really a worshiper of God. Well, we'll see a little later with David. They bring in the Ark of the Covenant, and David begins to dance ferociously in his underwear. I mean, what a bizarre scene. Saul's very daughter mocks him for this, but it shows you a picture of David's heart. Are you a worshiper, or do you come in late for the worship songs? You're not uncomfortable singing. I don't like this song. I don't like that song. Look, I can worship to any song, any place, any time. Some I prefer, but I I love to worship. Do you worship in your own house? Do you get down on your hands and knees in your office, men, and worship God? Do you have an an, an appetite for worship? Are you a worshiper? David was. Saul gives no indication that he ever was. And then lastly, Saul was consumed with the opinions of men. We see it over and over and over. Just cared more about what people. Why? We're going to go all the way back to when we launched this church and we talked about the unseen realm and the seen realm. Saul was firmly planted in the seen realm. He lived in this realm. He relished this realm. He was consumed with this realm, filled with the opinions of men. Proverbs 29 says the the fear of men brings a snare. It captures you. You can get over here and never been able to get back over here to the unseen realm because you're captured, you're snared. The opinions of men are such a lure to you, like the Cyrene song, and you are there and you're just like, oh boy, he, he, he praises me and he doesn't like me and, he, and, da, 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 and the people are, and, and David just didn't care what people thought. It was easier for David. But he was ensnared, Saul was over here, couldn't even get over there if he wanted to. Couldn't get to the unseen realm, couldn't get to a relationship, couldn't be a worshiper of God. Never did truly repent. Why? He was just captured over here. Now real quickly, 1 Samuel 13, I, I'm, I, this is very important that we just quickly go back before we close this this morning. Listen to this. Listen. Let this be instruction for your soul. We all have it in us to some degree. I don't want you to be captured over here. We'll be a stagnant, pathetic, unproductive, unfruitful church if our people are ensnared in the realm of the seen. Well, you know, the only things that ever come out of your mouth are seen realm things. Golf and this and that and the money and the stock market. And that's the only thing that ever comes out of your mouth. You never talk about God. You go to church and you can't even uncomfortable talking about God here. Those are indications. Don't don't get down on yourself. Just go, I've got to explode. Lord, I need to explode out of the scene realm. I want to come over here. I want to be a true worshiper. I want to be a David. I want David to be my model, not Saul. Please. What did Saul do? 1 Samuel 13, verse 11. Again, Samuel shows up. He says, what have you done? And Saul says, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come with me in the appointed days and the Philistines were assembled at Michmash. What? What had happened? He said, look, I want you to wait. The Bible says that they were hard-pressed. The enemy was all around them. Wait. Samuel says, wait, don't do anything until I get there. And the people began to scatter. Why? Because when you're over here, you're looking at people. You're not looking at God. People are leaving. People are scattering from this church. What are we going to do? 
we got to get a new building because people are scattering from this church. I don't care, Lord. We're waiting on you till you tell us what to do, whatever it is. And at that moment, you'll provide it'll be right. I'm just giving you an analog there. But here he was, and he says, ah, oh, he said, and then, okay, and he took the role of the priest. And he began to do the sacrifices. He began to do everything. And, then, of course, then Samuel shows right up and goes, you know, the kingdom's being taken away from you. You didn't inquire the Lord. Did you ask the Lord? Where's Samuel? We got no indication. He just saw the people scattering. The circumstances were such that I had to act. Are you following me here? But it happens again. 1 Samuel 15. Listen to these words. It's very important. Starting in verse 10. Then the, word, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. He has turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. What was Samuel doing? Because Samuel was over here. How did he know that the Lord was distressed and didn't want? Because he heard the Lord say that. He was a prophet. He lived in the unseen realm. And he got down on his hands and knees and he wept and he cried for Saul all night. Why? Because they, they had told him, go in and completely wipe out the Amalekites. Don't leave anything. And what he did is he wiped out the weak things, kept the good stuff, and just, he never obeyed. He never, he never followed through Saul because why? He's over here. And listen to all the things that happen in this brief narrative. Only a few paragraphs, but listen to this. So instructive. Here's Samuel living over here, crying out to the Lord. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Oh, great, Saul. Saul, well done. Bravo. Yeah. You know, you got all these things going on, and you're over here, and you got nothing better to do. I said, I'm going to set up a monument. See, when you live over here, you're going to care. Again, a snare is that you care about what people think about you. So I've got to set up a monument over here because I want people to think Saul is great because I feel so, I feel so little. Maybe if I set up a monument for myself, people will think more of me. Saul. He proceeded to down to Gilgal, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. No, you didn't. Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? You're supposed to wipe out everything. And the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. Can you see the, the irony here? I've carried out the commands of the Lord. <laughs> Samuel, what am I hearing, Saul? They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to, the, to sacrifice, now catch the wording here, to sacrifice to the Lord, my God, to the Lord, your God. Why did Saul use that language? Because he knew he wasn't his God. Deep down, intuitively, instinctively, they wanted to sacrifice to your God, Samuel. Do you talk in that language? You know, the God of my wife, you know, she goes to all these Bible studies, and I really have not, you know, I, I kind of poke my head in every once in a while. But deep down, it's her God or women. You know, my husband's been going to these Bible studies. His, his life's really, he's so different. He's reading the Bible. And I really think, you know, we go to church and everything, but, you know, the Lord, his God, would you use that language? It has to become personal, relational. The Lord, my God. 
But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Notice what the Lord said to me. Samuel can hear the Lord. Saul has no ability to hear. Samuel said, is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission? He said, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. I don't have time to go into that. It's important. We don't do that anymore. That was a short period of time. That was God's justice in time for the Amalekites. Go all the way back to Exodus 17 and see that God said exactly what he's going to do to the sons and into this tribe. Sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed, it's better than rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And you would think at this point Saul would be slayed. I mean, he should have been like Nabal. Maybe a stroke began to hit him. Start to get the world start to spin. And he'd go, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. But see, he's so firmly entrenched over here that he says, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because, and he gets this right, I feared the people and I listened to their voice, but there's a slow shift here of blame shifting. Please pardon my sin, but would you please go with me? So the people are like, well, Samuel hadn't deserted him that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now. It won't quit. It's, it is a play. It can't, it's so deeply in him. Okay, I'll go to church. I'll repent. I'll sing a song. I'll raise my hands. I'll give money. But don't get me out of this realm because it's, it's like I'm like a meth addict. People must see me, exalt me, honor me. Here's another monument. I'll build another monument. I want people to know because, I, because he felt so little in his own eyes and he had no relational integrity. See, I, I'll tell you something. See, when I see people that are so confident, don't need to, don't need to sh- sh- tout, you know, toot their own horn, all that says to me is they've got, they have a personal relationship with Jesus. They don't need to tell people. They already have it. There's a quiet confidence there. So what does God think about you? What does God think about me? I ask that all the time. I was thinking that as I was driving here. Lord, if all, all the curtains pulled back, what do you think of me? I know you love me. I know you embrace me because of Jesus. But how am I living my life? Are you pleased with my life? Is it just religion with you? Or do you love Jesus and you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you hear him speak? Are you captivated by the unseen? Is that part of your nature? Are you ready to, to surrender? Do you hear him speak? Do you, see, do you see into the unseen realm? Are you surrendered to the creator of the universe? Let's close with this worship song, and I'm going to come back and read a quick poem, and then we're done. 